Greetings, brothers, and I know there are a few sisters out there too, because I hear from you. I am so glad to be able to bring God's word to you today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, the Sermon on the Mount. I am delighted to be a part of this study that Barton and Todd have us on in uh, a study of the book of Matthew, but, but the kingdom of God as the focus, the, the, the main motif of the book of Matthew. And here uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, the so-called Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Christ says he is, he is the Lord, he is the king of our minds. And as our minds are submitted to him, as, we, as our thinking is submitted to King Jesus, it will determine the way we live and the way we live will be countercultural. It'll be radical. I want you to strap yourself in, get ready for the way King Jesus will lead us into transformative thinking and transformative living. Matthew writes, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. O Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts that we would see and believe and commit to the wonderful things we, we learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. I was talking to a pastor recently. I've been talking to lots of pastors uh, over this past year, especially in the pandemic. And uh, he was telling the story that so many have uh, told, so many of so many of us have experienced that that um, that troubles have come into the church, and troubles have come into relationships and marriages and in in uh, ministries of the church. 
as a result of the, of the stress and strain of this pandemic. And my friend said, a very wise pastor, man who's been a pastor a lot longer than I have, he said, George, what's disturbing to me about this situation that I'm in with my church and some of the people in my church is that it reveals what has truly formed them, what has truly shaped them, and it hasn't been God's word. It, this, this, this suffering has exposed that though they've been in church, though they've been under the preaching of the word, though they've led ministries, the word, the word of God, the mind of Christ has not been formed in them. Martin Lloyd-Jones described a similar thing, but he, he said it, it, that suffering is the acid test of the Christian life, that when someone is put in a real fix, a real tight spot, he was describing uh, his people going through World War II and in the bunkers, uh, the bomb shelters, in England, and he said, there, you could see. That, that was the acid test. That was, the, that was what revealed is the faith, is, is, is your relationship with Christ solid to the point that it is forming your thoughts and your reactions, or has it proven to be something that you assented to, that you participated in, but it didn't form your mind. It did not change your thinking. When push comes to shove, when, when, the, when the pressure's on, to what do you default? Do you default to, what, to, to your education? Do you default to your prejudices? Do you default to what is best for you, the survival instincts that you have been given? Do you default to your, to your business acumen, your experiences in the workplace? Do you default to your politics? Do you default to your fear? Do you default to anything other than or in addition to Jesus Christ and the way he says you must think and act and feel and respond in every situation. That is what he is preaching in this text. He is saying, if you are in the kingdom of God, and if you will live a blessed life, that is one, one of happiness in sync with God and the way he's made reality to function, if you will, this is what it's going to look like. He doesn't say this meritoriously. If you just add these things to your life, then God will be pleased with you. But when Christ has you united to himself, this is what, you're, what characterizes your mind. My title is The Christian Mind. What are the characteristics of it? I see that there are five. Verses 1 through 16, and the first one is humility. The first characteristic of a Christian mind is humility. You see that in verses 3 and 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek. The blessings that follow are the kingdom of heaven that shall inherit the earth. In other words, these are the people 
The, the, the people who are in the kingdom of heaven, the people who are going to live forever and inherit the earth, are those who are characterized by poverty of spirit and meekness. It's not that they earn these, these blessings by these attributes. These attributes give away the fact that they are in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is, to be, what is it to be poor in spirit? The, the Bible, now when, the, when the, Jesus talked a lot about ministering to the poor, he meant the materially poor, but here he is intentionally describing an, an, a characteristic, an, an internal spiritual characteristic. And so he adds poor in spirit. And, and to be impoverished of spirit, to be poor in spirit, is to be self-effacing. Let me put it in other ways, to get over yourself. It's to be one who is over himself, herself. John Calvin said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. He who is reduced to nothing in himself. Charles Spurgeon says the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. That's to get over yourself. And here are the tools that God uses to get us over ourselves. It is if the Spirit is working in you, the Spirit is uniting you to Christ, he is going to make sure the poverty of spirit, humility is worked in you. And these are the trouble, these are the uh, these are the tools he uses. He uses he uses uh, the need for refuge. We've all been seeking refuge since since the fall, since Adam and Eve tried to find refuge from God. We've been seeking it. Zephaniah three twelve. He uses the tool of trouble. He puts you puts you in a tight spot, tough situation. Psalm thirty four six. You realize I don't have I don't have what it takes. He uses loneliness. Isaiah 57, 15, boy, has he used loneliness in this pandemic to drive us to the end of ourselves. Suicide rates are incredible. Despair, depression, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Loneliness is a major contributor to those maladies. He uses failure. Isaiah 41, 17 and 18, there's nothing to convince you that you are nothing like failure. And um, if you haven't failed at something yet, the time will come. And it's not a punishment. It's a grace. It's not a punishment, the need for refuge, trouble in your life, loneliness, failure. These are God's graces to get us over ourselves and to cause us to rest on him as those who are truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What do we do? What do we do? There must be something we do as well. We repent of it. We constantly ask him, get me over myself. Enable me to be poor in spirit. Help me out of thinking myself strong. That's what, that's what um, Jesus rebuked one of the churches in, in Revelation 4, in Revelation 3.17. You who think yourselves strong. Humility is to be poor in spirit. Humility is to be meek. As it says in verse 5, blessed are the meek. What is meekness? Meekness is, can be defined in many ways, and you've probably heard them, but I, I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor who preached 
probably, I think, the great, I think the greatest sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor at Westminster Chapel for many years, to the war years especially, he said this about meekness, about this beatitude in particular. We prefer to condemn ourselves. We prefer that over someone else condemning us. I say of myself, I'm a sinner. But instinctively, I do not like anyone else to say I'm a sinner. That's the principle introduced here. I, I can say to you, I've, I'm, I've sinned. I let people down. I, I have a sharp tongue. I'm proud. I'm, but if my wife tells me that, or my children, or an elder, or another member of the church, and I don't like that. Do you? <laughs> no, we don't. The alcoholics in my family, thank God God has set them free, but they, they I remember when they used to talk about drunks. They talked about drunks, other drunks, but boy, if you call them a drunk, call them an alcoholic, you're liable to get sucked in the nose. Meekness is to accept when other people tell us the truth about ourselves, even when it hurts. Blessed are the meek. Those, that's a Christian mind. That's a mark of humility. Now you say, do I let people tell me everything about myself, even if it's not true? No, there's, there's three filters I want to give to you for how you determine whether that, that critique that you're receiving is to be is to be taken in or maybe it is to be pushed back against one is is it from god is it biblical we learned that from from david and his interaction with shimei where his son absalom had rebelled against him and in second samuel 16 in shame humiliation he's walking away from uh, the capital and a man named Shimei comes out and, and he's just an ordinary guy. He starts throwing rocks at him and he says, cursed are you, cursed are you. In other words, you're getting this because you deserve it. And you can imagine David's closest friends and his allies, they take up a sword, they're gonna, they're gonna whack this guy. And they say, and David says, no, don't do that. Let him speak. If he speaks the truth, then God will prove it. If he is speaking falsely, God will prove that too. That's a sign of meekness. David says, it could be true. I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to let God, I'm going to let God's providence sort it out. I'm going to let scripture, God's word, sort it out. If it proves not to be scriptural, if it proves not to be true, then that person should be dealt with. And that's usually not ourselves, it's for someone else. Is it verifiable? Uh, Paul invited the, the, the Corinthians who were, who were uh, doubting his credibility, assailing his reputation. He said, test me, test me. See if these things are true that you accuse me of. Second Chronicles 13, five to eight third filter is, is it harmful to the greater church? If I allow this, this untruth, this critique to be made of me, is it going to hurt not just me, not just my family, but the greater church? 
Uh, Paul said, it's one thing for you to it's one thing for you to accuse my character, but when you start accusing me of preaching a false gospel, then may you be accursed. Because, not because you're attacking me, but because you, you are bringing uh, disrepute on the message which alone saves. Or in, in, um, in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, when he's talking about the kind of people who should lead us, he says, he says your, your life needs to be as an elder, as a pastor, as a deacon, your life needs to be of of such character that that no one can say evil about us. It means you're going to be perfect, but if you're living a scandalous life, if you're living a life of dissension and division, then that that causes that that brings a bad reputation on the whole church. It could disrupt the whole church. So, is it is it of God? Is it biblical? Is it verifiable? If it is, it harmful to the greater church? If we if we determine that it doesn't get through these filters, then it must be opposed in defense of what we're being accused of, but usually by bringing in two or three witnesses who will examine the matter and make make a judgment. First characteristic of Christian mind is humility. Second Christian, the characteristic of a Christian mind, we learn in verses four, six, and eight, is desire. We might say passion, but passion's, I think it's overused these days, but it's almost lost its meaning. But it's it's desire. It's more than just it's 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 more than just oh yeah, that'd be nice to have that. It's 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 feverish. And, and, and it, it is characterized by three things in 4, 6, and 8. It looks like mourning over our sin. It looks like hungering for righteousness. It looks like longing for purity. Mourning for sin is what we find in verse 4. We blessed are those who mourn. Doesn't mean just staying in, in the funks all day long, every day, or in a constant state of remorse, it means blessed are those who mourn their sin. We must weep more for sin and its effects, not just our sin that we commit, but the sin that characterizes the world. Mourning that for my my son and my wife. I mean, they, they don't cry a lot, but when they see a story or read a story and that um, that reveals the the, the the evil of the world or 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 the little person or the vulnerable person being crushed by injustice they always cry and 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 those tears become petitions to God we must weep more not just for our own sin but for the sin of the world. Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer said, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickednesses. The Bible describes weeping over the forsaking of the law of God, our own and others, Psalm 119, 136. It, it says, it describes weeping as we confess our sin, Ezekiel 10, verse one. That's the, that's the prayer that led to revival and confessing not just our sin, but the sin of our fathers and grandfathers. It's not a popular theme lately, but it's, it's in scripture. They said, we, 
our fathers, our grandfathers have have sinned. We confess that to you, Lord, and we confess it in part. We name it because we don't want to repeat it. We don't want to, we're, we're not going to live in the, in the constant shame of it. That doesn't mean that. It means we acknowledge that that was wrong and we're going to depart from it. We weep and groan over abominations. Ezekiel 9, verse 4, we weep and mourn that we were enemies of the cross. Philippians 3, 18, we weep for those who are still enemies of the cross. It's the only way to receive a comfort from Jesus who is numbered with transgressors. Only the people who realize they sat in darkness, Isaiah said, have seen a great light and, and have acknowledged that the Savior is the comforter. Simeon praised the Lord for the consolation of Israel. You can't, you can't receive comfort as a transgressor until you, you acknowledge that Jesus sat among transgressors. You can't, you can't receive what Jesus offers to you until, you until you recognize yourself to be in the company of the transgressors. That's where Jesus is. It's to mourn for sin. A holy desire that's characteristic of a Christian mind, also a hunger for righteousness. Now, righteousness in the Bible is used at least three ways. A lot of confusion over this word righteousness. A lot of confusion over this word justice. They're interchangeable in the Bible. There's legal justice, there's moral justice, and there's social justice. It's, it's, that's what's in the Bible. I know there's confusion and people getting hung up in all kinds of ways, but this is what the Bible teaches. When it's talking about justice as it has come to us in relationship, as descriptive of our relationship with God, it's a legal justice. That that the righteous accomplishments of Jesus in his life and death are substituted for, for our sin, and we become legally just. We become legally righteous. That's one aspect of and we must hunger for that it's hunger to be in right relationship with him that's what drives us to ask for it and then there's moral justice there's moral righteousness and and the and and that's descriptive of thoughts words and deeds that are imitative of Jesus that we are morally conformed to him moral justice and then there is social justice or social righteousness, and that is uh, proactively advocating for the way God says things ought to be. Not necessarily for the way other people say it ought to be, or the whims of the day. We look at the Bible and we say, this is what it's supposed to be. People are to be regarded as image bearers of God. People are to be uh, regarded um, uh, are to be given uh, equal justice. People are to be, people are to be given uh, the basic needs as a human being of, of, um, of food and shelter and clothing, and, 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 and the poor are to be advocated for. And whatever we see, God saying this is the way things ought to be. That is what is just. That is what is righteous. And we as Christians are to or to advocate for it. Who else is going to? 
We are the ones who know the characteristics and the blessings of living in the kingdom of God. And so we bring the kingdom of God to bear on everything. We are taking a big eraser to the kingdom of the devil. And we see people in poverty. We see people hungry. We see people uh, 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 prosecuted wrongly. We see people being falsely judged. We see we see uh, uh, politicians acting the wrong way. We, whatever it is, we take it in eraser and we say that is not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of the devil. And we're going to we're going to pull that back and show you how beautiful is the kingdom of God. Thirdly, it's to long for purity. That is desire. We must long to have our motives exposed before the Lord, so they will be conformed to His. Luke chapter 11, verse 39, or Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Lord, bubble up out of me. The inmost motivations of my heart is going to be disturbing. It's going to be miserable. But it's the only way to live and really live. You can't see God clearly until you see yourself honestly. We love to shape our reality. We love to blame our problems on somebody else. We love to see ourselves persecuted and, and, uh, and, and suffering. We love to feel sorry for ourselves. We love to impose our... But we don't like to see our own motives. And when our motives are exposed and our heart is open before God, we say, Lord, please shape my motives. The, 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 the very reasons I do say and think what I do say and think after your motives, then it's only then that we live freely. John Calvin said, it is certain man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then when he looks on God's face, he descends from contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. You you learn who God is in part by looking at yourself. I'm made in the image of God and so forth. And then, you, and then you look at God and you say, God is holy and I'm not. We, we only learn who God is by looking at ourselves and we only become truly ourselves as we look at God and imitate him, him in the grace of Christ. Number three, the Christian mind is characterized by by humility, it's characterized by desire, and it's characterized by duty. Duty, verses 7 and 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I just want to focus on verses 7 and 9, the merciful and the peacemakers. Now, again, I want to make it clear, we're not talking about ways to be saved. You just become a peacemaker, you become a pure and merciful and so forth, you will be saved. No, on the contrary, Martin Luther said it as clearly as anyone. Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he is already a Christian and in a state of grace. When you're in a state of grace, if the, if the mind of Christ your Savior is, is living in you from day to day, you'll be one who is driven to this kind of duty. In fact, Luther says, 
the impossible requirements of the Sermon on the Mount are Mosesimus Moses. Mosesimus Moses. It is Moses quadrupled. It is Moses multiplied to the highest degree. In other words, these things you cannot possibly achieve on your own. But these things, if you're in Christ, characterize your mind, your living. So you are one who shows mercy. Grace, someone has said, is the relief of guilt, and mercy is the relief of the effects of sin. Guilt, grace is the relief of the guilt of sin, and mercy is the relief of the effects of sin. And we are to be those who pursue mercy, that we bring relief to the effects of sin. It's what Jesus has done for us by moving into us. And it's what Jesus, the way Jesus does it in society is through us. So when we look at a situation, we say, you know, that person is going in a wayward direction because they didn't have a good father. We don't just stop there. We don't say, you know, if you just go and get yourself a good father, then you won't make those kinds of mistakes. No, it's, it's, this is a, these are the needs that Christians historically have stepped into. And we become surrogate fathers, or we teach men how to be good fathers. If you, if you, if you, if you know, if you had a job, you wouldn't steal. So go get yourself a job, even though you don't have any networks and you don't have any ability. No, we step in and we say, let's help close the gap. Why do we do that? Because that's the way Jesus has treated us. Jesus has relieved us, not only the guilt of sin, but he relieves us of the effects of sin. He changes our whole lives. And it's, it's essential that we are merciful people because mercy is at the core of God's character. Exodus chapter 33, 18 and 19. Show me, God, your glory. My glory is my mercy. What's in my heart, what's in the core of who I am, what drives everything about me is I'm merciful. If we call ourselves children of God, then we will be merciful. First Corinthians, First uh, Peter chapter 2. Verse 10, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Mercy characterizes the one who has a Christian mind. And the one who refuses to show mercy is one who, the Bible, this is tough, the Bible says this. The Bible says the one who refuses mercy is one who puts himself in the tradition of being a traitor like Judas. Check it out. Psalm 109, verses 8, 6, and 17. Psalm 109 describes people who refuse to be merciful. And it's, it's from those verses that Jesus quotes when he describes who Judas has become. Judas is not just a, a betrayer of the, of the Savior. He was, he was a traitor to the image of God because he wasn't merciful. Jesus said, none who is not merciful is an evildoer, Matthew chapter seven, verse 23, and will be numbered with the goats at the great day. He'll be on his left hand, Matthew chapter 25, 45 and 46. Someone has a Christian mind, uh, fulfills a duty of mercy. He also fulfills a duty of making peace. We... We show mercy because we have received mercy, verse 7, and we are peacemakers because we have seen God, verse 8. They shall see God. Those who see God are peacemakers and are called the sons of God. 
seeing God creates imitators of God's peacemaking. Peacemaking is not mere appeasement. It's not saying, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's true or not. Just, just admit to it and let's have some peace. Or let's just sweep it under the rug. Or, or um, let's just pretend everything is fine. That is not peacemaking. Peacemaking in the Bible has at least five characteristics. Five things. If you're going to have a Christian mind that thinks about peacemaking the way God thinks about peacemaking, the way it's described in God's word, it's at least five things. One is God alone makes peace by changing hearts. Colossians 1 verse 20 and Ephesians 2 15. We don't make peace. We pursue peace, but only God can bring about true peace as he changes hearts. Number two, peace requires suffering pain. And, and, and most often it requires suffering pain by those who are the most gracious. There's always someone who is more mature in a strained relationship. There's always someone who is, who is more tuned in, who has, a, who has a clearer Christian mind than someone else. And it, it's, it falls to that one who, who sees the kingdom of God more clearly than the other to be more gracious and to suffer more pain for the sake of bringing peace. And you pray for the maturity of the other person. So that pain, it seems to me, it comes for several reasons. I've, I've been able to think of three. Pain, pain and peacemaking comes at times from delaying forgiveness. Now, forgiveness in the Bible is, is, means restoring the relationship to normal. Uh, it, uh, often we say, you just need to forgive. What we mean is you can't, be, can't live in bitterness. But if, if someone has, has truly wronged, done a wrong, that, that cannot be uh, tolerated and enabled and indulged, then what we mean by withholding forgiveness is to say this relationship is not going to be normal until you repent. Jesus said that, Luke 17. How often should I forgive my brother? Up to 70 times 7, Jesus says, as often as he repents. Pain also comes from pursuing the sinner. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, he, Christ died for us. God pursued us at great pain to himself. And while we at times delay forgiveness, the normalization of a relationship, we nevertheless pursue. We're never free not to love. We must always love and pursue boldly. And that pain comes as well from listening. We must listen. If we're, if we're helping people come to, to reconciliation, if we're helping people come together, it means we have to pay attention to them. We have to listen to them. And we listen to stories that their perspective, even if it's wrong at times, listening to it instead of always speaking, but be slow to speak and quick to listen. We listen for their pain that we might empathize, that we might help them come to a state of peace. God alone creates peace. Peace requires suffering. Uh, three when there's discord in the church, it requires our foremost attention. There is no disruption anywhere on the planet that is of greater urgency than disruption in the church. 
because the church of Jesus Christ is the central agency of his redemption. It's the primary way through which he brings salvation into the world. If we allow the church to be disrupted, we play into the devil's hands, we allow him to get a foothold, and people go to hell as a result. We must make reconciliation and peacemaking in the church a primary duty. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It is, a, it is an emergency above all others. And number four, peacemaking is a necessary proof of our union with Christ. We're called to make peace in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. To, to refuse to make peace is to, is to despise the prayer of Jesus for unity in John chapter 17, verses 20, 21. Our sonship um, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Those who are related to God as children of God become peacemakers. It, it, one commentator, Don Carson says, it means well, we imitate the Father. If, the Father. if we're related to the Father, we imitate the Father. He makes peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, it, it means that we're, we're under, his, under his rule. He owns us. We don't have a choice but to be peacemakers. Fifth characteristic of biblical peacemaking is it's evangelistic. The primary way through which we're going to bring peace in this world is by winning souls to Christ. It's by sharing with people how they can be reconciled to God, how they can be made at peace with God. Romans chapter five. Verse one, it is to be, it is to be, it is to be put at peace with God. Justification is to be at peace with God. We, we agonize for people. We, we plead with people. We share with them. We invest our lives in them so that they might find peace with God. And when they find peace with God, they will be given the only means by which they can find peace with other people. That's why the church is essential. There's, no, there's not gonna be any reconciliation in this country. There's not gonna be any reconciliation in our city. Not gonna be any reconciliation or peacemaking among races or socioeconomic strata without the church leading it, without Christians being personally involved in it because we have the only power by which people can find peace, peace with God and then peace with each other. Christian mind. Christian mind is one that fulfills its duty by showing mercy and uh, making peace. Fourth characteristic of Christian mind is, is, is that we gratefully suffer with Christ, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are you when, when people revile you, that's with their words. And then they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Sometimes we deserve it. Sometimes we've earned it. Sometimes they say things about us that are really not very important. Or you keep up our yard or whatever. This is talking about, this is when we, have, we are standing with Christ, when we're living in Christ and people persecute us. He says, don't bellyache about it and whine about it. You're blessed. The blessing comes, first of all, by saying, this must mean that I belong 
in the kingdom of heaven. I'm united to Christ because John says, 1 John chapter th uh, 3, verse 1, I think, uh, he says, uh, look, if you, the reason the world doesn't know us is that we, they didn't know him. We look like him. And so they reject us because they reject him. That's a wonderful thing. It's not pleasant to go through persecution. But uh, it is a wonderful confirmation that, oh, Jesus, this means I'm, I'm like you. I'm with you. This is what you suffered, and I'm suffering this because I'm, I'm like you. Rejoice in it. Be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, not because you're suffering. It means your reward is great. This is proof that you are going to heaven. You belong to Jesus. And you're in that great line. This is, this is what is supposed to be happening. They persecuted the prophets. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said. Uh, all who desire to live, live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said, will be persecuted. So a godly, grateful, uh, a godly mind, a Christian mind is one that suffers with Christ. One of my dear friends had an illustration once he said when he was growing up he played baseball and he sat on the bench for a lot of games and uh, when he came home his his mom didn't even have to wash his his white baseball pants because he never got in the game and he 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 envied those those kids who came in with the dirt grime on their pants it meant they'd been in the game he finally got in the game he got in the game and even if he didn't have to even if he didn't have to slide into second base, he slid into second base so he could rub that red mud, that red dirt into his jersey. Even, if, even after he caught a fly ball in the outfield, he fell down so he could get grass stains on his, he said, I wanted to have those stains on my britches because it meant I'd been in the game. And he said, I, when I get to heaven, I want to have blood stains on my britches, on my clothing. Because it means I've been in the game for Jesus. That's what our Christian mind is. I don't want to be on the side. I don't want to limp into heaven. I want to get up to heaven. I want to say, here are the scars I've borne for you. And I'm so grateful that I was united to you. Don't run from trouble. Finally, the characteristic of the Christian mind is that we're servants. Servants, even the people who revile us and persecute us and don't believe like we do make fun of us, take our rights away from us. We are servants in two ways. We are salt and we are light. Salt does a couple of things. It preserves, uh, preserves meats, gives a symbol of preservation uh, in uh, certain rites in the Old Testament, like rubbing salt on a newborn baby. God protect us, Ezekiel 16.4. It also seasons, it has zest, it has taste. That's what we're about too. We're not just, we're not just retreating, but Christians are to, Christians should be the life of the party. Christians should lead in joy. Christians should lead in confidence. Christians should lead in the way we speak to one another in loving and, and, and peacemaking ways. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Some of you have salty speech. That's not what he's talking about. He means speech that blesses, that builds up. 
It adds, in the Old Testament, sometimes salt was to be added to an offering. It was just, just, to, just to dress it up a little bit. It was, to, it was to add some zest to it. And, and so whatever we offer, whatever we're doing for Christ in the world, there should be some zest in it. We should make the world around us better, make the workplace better, make our, our neighborhoods better. We should make our, our city better just by our living in it. I'm sitting back criticizing it all the time, wondering where it's going to go. They're always after us and so whining and complaining. No, it is. Let's turn this thing around in the name of Christ. Let's bring the kingdom of heaven to it. And then we're light. Light exposes sin, John 3, 19. Light also guides to glory. We bring light into the world, into our cities as as Jeremiah said, chapter 29, a verse that is very important to us as 2nd Presbyterian, chapter 29, verses 5 to 7. Pray for shalom to come to your city. Build houses. Give your daughters away in marriage. Plant gardens. Bring light and life and joy and zest to a world that will, may, will never love you back the way should. We bring it because we're filled up in Jesus. The Christian mind, Christian mind, pray for it. Pursue it, beg God for it. Ask people around you to help develop it in you. The Christian mind characterized by humility, meekness, desire, duty, grateful suffering and servanthood. Dear brothers and sisters, I love you very much and we'll pray for you right now. Oh Lord, this suffering that we're going through personally in our lives or this suffering that we're all going through corporately in this, in this pandemic is exposing the places where we do not have Christian minds and we pray that you would that we wouldn't be shamed by it and paralyzed by it, but rather view it as a, as a kind of checkup, a kind of spiritual stress test. It shows us where we need your grace in particular to be added to us. Make us people of Christian minds and thus Christian lives and use us to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.